Hi everyone and welcome to South Asia Sphere, Himal South Asia's monthly roundup of news events and developing stories across South Asia. I'm Raisa and I'm joined by my colleagues Shubhanga, Malan and Shweta. Hi guys. Hi. Hello. Hi. So our big stories in this edition include the state and civil society response to escalating violence in Myanmar and environmental issues in Nepal and Sri Lanka. We'll also be doing a quick roundup of other news stories we're following around South Asia as well as our new culture section bookmarked. Thanks to all those who participated in our polls on Twitter and Instagram and helped us to pick the name. So let's start off with the situation in Myanmar. Thanks, Raisa. So we're now in the third month of the coup in Myanmar, and the last couple of weeks have been particularly violent. Um, the number of civilians killed by the army has now crossed 550. And uh, on March 27, which also happened to be the Armed Forces Day, uh, over 110 were killed on a si- on a single day. Um, Perhaps the most shocking casualty figure throughout this has been the number of children killed, which is now close to fifty. In uh, another important news, um, Aung San Suu Kyi has now been charged with sharing state secrets. Uh, it's the fifth and the most serious charge leveled against her, and it actually carries a sentence of up to fourteen years. So the law that's been used against her has often been criticized by rights activists for being very broad and vague. Uh, but for Suu Kyi, who's seventy-five now, you know, a sentence of fourteen years would Could basically mean the end of her political career, um, but there have also been some interesting developments on the international coverage of Myanmar. And uh, Raisa, do you want to talk about it? Yeah. So um, meanwhile, CNN was kind of flown into Yangon under supervision by the military to cover the unfolding events, um, and CNN argued that they felt that it was important for them to be there. But eleven people were actually detained after being interviewed by them in an open market. Um, and while CNN said that eight of these people had been released, um, the question is why did they have to be there in the first place? Because there's been plenty of coverage from journalists and activists on the ground. Um, and in fact, even we were able to interview the director of Hurform in Mon State, which you can read now on our website. Um, so the CNN report did go live this week, and there was actually nothing particularly new or even groundbreaking in that report. So this tour has actually ended up reviving conversations about this concept of parachuting journalists and the danger that international journalists can sometimes put locals in uh, when they are speaking to them. Yeah, I, I think your point about you know the report being unremarkable is quite important. I mean. From listening to their correspondent, uh, I think Clarissa Ward, and um, and also you know just the way they frame the whole thing, it seems like making claims about being the first international journalist or the first media organization to arrive in Myanmar, you know, was like the main thing CNN was concerned about, um, which is also like you said completely untrue. There are you know lots of Myanmar nationals and non-nationals who've been reporting for uh, international outlets, and uh, it seems like you know they have this strange idea. About who counts as an international reporter and who doesn't, um, and you know what's even the point of being in being somewhere in the first place if, like you said, there's nothing fresh or new about the reporting um, except the fact that you know they ended up becoming the news. Exactly, Shubhanga. But apart from the CNN report, I heard that there have also been protests against the events in Sh- Myanmar across the region. So yeah. Um, 
So around the region, we're also seeing uh, activists, but in some cases also political figures who've uh, spoken out against what's happening in Myanmar. Um, in Nepal, for example, earlier in March, a group protested outside the Myanmar embassy. Uh, in fact, several groups, um, civil society, people concerned with human rights, democracy, have been coming out with statements, um, including one which asked the government to kind of, Nepal government to stand up. And um, also some MPs in the Nepal parliament from the opposition party actually spoke out against the coup. Uh, so did you guys hear that uh, in early March, Sri Lanka started trending in Myanmar? Yeah. Is this the protest Sri Lanka hashtag that was trending on Facebook and Twitter? Yeah. Uh, now, this hashtag was in response to a letter that was leaked online from the Sri Lankan foreign ministry, who had invited uh, the Myanmar junta's foreign minister to a meeting of the regional body uh, BIMSTEC, which is the Bay of Bengal Initiative for Multisectoral Technical and Economic Cooperation. Later, the foreign ministry clarified the act by saying that they invited Myanmar because they were you know, part of the body and uh, that the invitation does not mean an endorsement. Um, and they went on further to state that Sri Lanka is, uh, is yet to take a position on the Myanmar coup. Meanwhile, nearly 40 Sri Lankan activists staged a demonstration outside the Myanmar embassy in Colombo in solidarity with Myanmar's protesting civilians. Yeah, and they were also asking why the government of Sri Lanka has remained silent on the issue. Yeah, and I mean, looking a bit more at the response from the region and elsewhere, now on March uh, 27th, the Armed Forces Day Parade was held in Myanmar, and eight countries, including Russia, China, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Vietnam, Laos, and Thailand, they sent representatives for this parade. Right, and during the United Nations Security Council consultations, which were on March 31st, China's ambassador actually stated that China rejects sanctions against Myanmar and called for a democratic transition. And with the violence in Myanmar forcing hundreds of refugees over the border into India, last week India's Home Ministry told four bordering states, that's Nagaland, Arunachal Pradesh, Manipur and Mizoram, to take measures to prevent refugees from entering India except on humanitarian grounds. And Mizoram's Chief Minister Zoram Tanga wrote to Prime Minister Modi and said that India cannot turn a blind eye to the humanitarian crisis unfolding in his state and the people of his state who share ethnic ties with refugees from Myanmar can't remain indifferent. Meanwhile, the Manipur government has withdrawn the letter issued last week directing officials and civil society organizations to not open camps for food and shelter. And from the Maldives, in a statement released on the 4th of March, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs joined the international community in condemning the military coup and has expressed concern over the growing number of lives lost and also urged the military to accept the vote of the people and to relinquish power to the elected National Assembly. Thanks, Shweta. So, uh, moving on to our next story. Uh, in Nepal, uh, forest fires are making the news. Uh, Raisa, what's the latest on that? Yes, Marlon. So, Nepal is currently feeling the effects of continuous forest fires since around November last year, actually. So, on 26 March, the Air Quality Index, which measures the concentration of harmful particles below 2.5 microns, rose to 632 in Kathmandu and stayed above 400 over the weekend. Um, that's 10 times higher than what the WHO deems safe to breathe. Yeah, and uh, 
some have also pointed out that the ongoing political crisis in Kathmandu has meant that you know these enduring environmental issues have been ignored and until it was impossible to in this case so the ministry of health issued a warning about uh, air pollution levels but you know it's been left to the citizens to really take care of their own health and i heard the smoke is even beginning to reach bhutan that's right and it's even gone up into tibet as well um but while these forest fires have received some media attention because of the smoke um there's also an important conversation about how vehicular emissions and industrial pollution and even open garbage burning are contributing much more to the poor air quality in nepal right but you know what i feel is missing in a lot of this conversation is the fact that stories or debates on environment are still kind of anodyne and don't get channeled into actual politics and i think we saw some interesting examples in sri lanka of what you know politicized environmental activism might look like so in one recent case uh, a large mural installed by a coalition of environmental groups was taken down by the municipal corporation in colombo um even though the groups had taken the necessary permission in advance um so the mural was speaking out, out against environmental destruction in sri lanka uh, and this government action to you know essentially deny public space and speech on this matter has sparked a lot of public debate on this right and there've been several other incidents recently as well um for example the argument between gampa district forest officer devani jayatilaka and minister nimal lanza about the nigambo lagoon development project and specifically the continued dumping of soil in the vicinity which would really damage the mangroves as devani points out there this ecological site that really needs to be protected yeah right and just like devani there was uh, the 17 year old bagya aberatna who raised concerns about deforestation in the singharaja rainforest on a tv program and what followed was like a calculated campaign against her in social media to discredit her claims and there were others who you know who criticized the program saying that it was scripted so this subsequently led to bagya being interrogated by the police and environmental officers Right and after these incidents the state now seems bent on seeing environmental activism as a threat so they've recently said that they would recruit 323 environmental officers to monitor accurate and false information about environmental incidents on social media which is concerning to say the least Moving on to our next segment called Around South Asia in 5 minutes. I'll start with an update on Bangladesh. Uh Modi's arrival in Dhaka for the 50th anniversary of independence in Bangladesh set off violent protests with more than a dozen people injured and 13 protesters have been killed. Members of an Islamist hardliner group attacked temples and a train in eastern Bangladesh accusing Modi of discriminating against Muslims in India. On another note we've also put out a call for submissions for non-fiction writing from Bangladesh so do head to our website for more details on this. Uh meanwhile uh, regarding Sri Lanka so the United Nations Human Rights Council has adopted a resolution on Sri Lanka uh which was opposed by the government. Um so what does it mean for the country? Well right now it basically gives mandate to the uh, office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights to start collecting evidence of war crimes and crimes against humanity committed by either side during the civil war 
So the immediate thing that will likely happen is that um, some funds will be set aside to create such an office. Yeah, and it seems that political and constitutional crises are now a trend in the region. So now it's kind of Tibet's turn with the chief justice and two justice commissioners of the Tibetan Supreme Justice Commission abdicating their posts after being dismissed by the Tibetan parliament in exile on charges of abuse of power. Um, Key to this crisis is actually Article 40 of the Exile Tibetan Charter, which requires that the House of Parliament meet around every six months. Um, And this was actually violated last September when the House cancelled sessions due to COVID-19. Now, the justices ruled that this was actually unconstitutional, despite the situation, and they revoked voting rights for 11 members, resulting in them being unable to vote in the preliminary round of elections in January 2021. And uh, now there's a new article in this charter being talked about, which is Article 54, which restricts Parliament from removing the Chief Justice and the other two justices without a report from a probe committee. So this crisis has essentially pitted Tibet's parliament in exile against its judiciary. And it's not unlike what happened in Nepal in the past few months and in Sri Lanka in 2018. So moving on to Pakistan, uh, a shipment of 50,000 doses of Sputnik uh, vaccine were being held in storage because the drug regulatory body and the government decided on a price, which the importer refused. Eventually, it was released. Um, It's also important to note that uh, Pakistan is one of the first countries in the region to allow private entities to import the vaccine. Uh, In contrast, in the Maldives and Bhutan, successful vaccination campaigns are driving the reopening of tourism now. So Maldives had around 100,000 tourist arrivals in March, and on 27 February, they had administered the first dose of the vaccine to over 100,000 people. All right, now on to our cultural section, which we are calling Bookmarked. Um, now, the initial plan uh, was to talk about the 2019 Tibetan film Balloon. And uh, we were all supposed to watch it. Uh, but unfortunately, we were ex- working extremely hard on our edits and, uh, you know, some of us forgot. But uh, Raisa, who always understands the assignment, has watched it and is here <laughs> to save the day. Yeah, it's totally fine. I mean, I quite enjoyed the movie, actually. Um, So Balloon, basically, it follows the story of a Tibetan family who farms. um, And it's set in the 1980s during, at the time of China's, you know, restrictive one-child policy. Um, And without giving away too much of the plot line, um, I'd say that it's really a story that um, kind of, talks about this tension between tradition and modernity. And um, it also explores how faith can kind of bind people together and be a sense of a kind of source of support, but also push them apart at times. Um, But what I particularly liked about this movie is it's also kind of um, really wryly humorous from the opening shot. Um, And it navigates these really taboo topics um, such as contraception, for example. And this movie also has really kind of subtle commentary on gender roles. Um, So, for example, I really enjoyed that the female protagonist isn't just, you know, the silent, submissive character. Um, She's portrayed kind of as someone who's torn between doing what's right and uh, following her faith. 
But having said that, you know, there were parts of the movie that I wasn't such a fan of. Um, they had these sudden kind of flights into uh, magic realism, if you will. Um, and those scenes were really beautifully shot. Um, according to the director, Pema Sedan, he's kind of said that those scenes are linked with elements of Tibetan culture. Um, and they are really beautiful. And you can see that what they are hinting at, it's kind of talking about the nature of youth and about loss and grief and death. Um, but I also felt that sometimes, you know, the way it was inserted, it kind of distracted from the narrative of the story. Um, and I thought it's the story itself stood strong enough on its own without necessarily needing those. Um, but yeah, I really kind of enjoy the movie apart from that. Yeah, that sounds, sounds interesting. And I, I think we can all go back and, and watch the movie also. Um, I've got a book recommendation. So this is uh, Amit Chaudhary's Finding the Raga, uh, which just came out or is it's just out or is out next week, I think. Um, so Chaudhary is an essayist and a novelist and, you know, pretty well known for, for doing that. But not many people know he's also an accomplished vocalist uh, in the North Indian Hindustani classical tradition. So the book is really a reflection on music and art and, you know, philosophy of music. And also what he calls a highly personal introduction to Indian music. So um, it sounds really interesting. And, uh, you know, good writing on art, especially on music, is kind of rare in South Asia these days. And I'm really excited about this book. Um, I, I think Chowder is also a great writer. So um, that'll be interesting to look forward to. Right. Well, uh, I didn't actually read anything from the region per se. Um, I've been reading the Wheel of Time series since the beginning of this year and um, I just finished the fourth book and it has been quite a traumatic experience so far. I mean, the books are great, uh, but the more I read, uh, the more I realize that one of my all-time favorite authors, someone I read since I was a child, was completely ripping off the Wheel of Time series. He was imitating the plot, the characters, uh, just about everything. Uh, I don't want to mention his name because, you know, he, he died <laughs> recently. Um, but I do feel deeply betrayed. I think I need therapy to get over this. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's it from me, basically. For those who enjoy true crime shows, there's a new limited series on Netflix called The Serpent, based on Charles Sobraj, a serial murderer in the 1970s who killed Western travelers on the hippie trail across South Asia and Bangkok. He's currently incarcerated in Nepal, and the show does a great job of piecing together the story and recreates the atmosphere of the hippie trail with a great 70s soundtrack. So if you enjoy true crime shows, do check that out. Well, that's it for this edition of South Asia Sphere. Um, do head to our website, himalmag.com, to see the cartoons illustrating this episode by Gihandi Chikera. And while you're at it, check out our membership plans and support our work. Thanks, everyone. Bye. 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 For more Himal podcasts, go to himalmag.com slash podcasts.